This is the Breachside Broadcast, the best Vox casting either side of the breach. by the Governor's Office of Entertainment. The only place to be at this time of the week. Tales of Malifaux with the tall, the dashing, the announcer. We'll be continuing on with our current story arc in two bumper tales. But first, a correction. Station management wanted me to issue an apology. I think that was what they were after, and I believe it was from them. It can be hard to tell what an omnipresent collective of masked power brokers wants sometimes. They can be distant like that. This note came up during this morning's script meeting by a being who slipped it under the doorway, then quickly ran off, never to be seen again. It reads as so. We would like to apologize for the misspelling of this program in the most recent Ethervox listings pamphlets. There was an additional I in the title, as in a human eye, in each copy. We would like to thank you for your continued listenership. Now, our first tale, Gremlins. Gremlins. The remains of the gremlin shanty burned brightly and lit up the night. Hidden in the shadow of a large mossy tree, the Ortegas made camp. As always, Ferdita led the crew. Her singular talents with the revolver and quick thinking made her an exemplary leader. How these gremlins continue to survive is a mystery to me, Santiago commented as the group huddled around a stump. Yeah, this end would be easy if they keep setting their own homes on fire. Nino was eager to add to the conversation and laughed meekly pointing at the small shanty that finally collapsed, consumed by the blaze. By the light of the building's dwindling flames, the group studied a map rolled out upon the stump. It showed a path through the swamp used by miners, as well as the locations where gremlin raids had taken place. Gremlins had recently shown an alarming and growing interest in soul stones. With no ability to mine the stones themselves, they took to raiding caravan routes near the swamp. Perdita pointed to a spot on the map. We're roughly here, she said. Gremlins might not seem important enough for us to hunt, but things have changed. When the Governor-General closed the northern caravan routes, we got reports of gremlin raiding parties that overtook them. Santiago spat the thick brown of his chewing tobacco. No, he said. Must be those tiny Nephilim before they start growing. They little baby ones. Gremlins is dumber than a sack of miata. Something's changed. There's a clan leader that's been organizing them, arming them. We got plenty of reports of small raids, including this big boss, even before the Kaitera incident. But now, we gotta do something about it. Tea for ourselves. Francisco nodded. The raid on the last caravan. Anything taken besides food and guns? See, si, that's the trouble. They left a lot of supplies, but took all the soul stones. They've actually been a few raids on Hollow Marsh, too. Nino. Sitting with his Tio and the other fledgling recruits they brought along, and slightly apart from his cousins, suddenly piped in. Soulstone? What's a gremlin need stones for? That's what we're here to find out. The clan leader will be in the middle of the biggest group of gremlins. We gotta find them and break them up, some at the least. No problemo, Nino said. What'd you say, Santiago? 
Five Gil Screep, I can beat the big heavy gremlin before you. Don't underestimate these creatures, Amano. These can turn ugly real quick, Francisco warned with an exhaled breath of tobacco smoke. Moi feo, he said in emphasis. Just then, a quiet snort in the darkness startled them as a small boar nudged Nino's leg with its tusk. Before Nino even realized what was happening, Pedita had drawn her revolver and shot the pig dead, with little more than a casual glance at the beast as she put it down in less time than it took Nino to recognize what it was. Up, she shouted, and then the whole bog filled with a sudden cacophony of whoops and gunfire. However, before the others could draw their arms, a giant boar nearly the size of a full-grown bull barreled into the camp. Its huge tusks gored into the midsection of one of the rookies and tossed him off into the darkness. Clutching desperately to the boar, a tiny, cackling gremlin held tightly to the thin row of bristles down the beast's back. In his other hand, he wielded his shotgun like a club, gripping the barrel to deliver a powerful blow to Papaloko's head. As the heavy wooden stock of the weapon connected with the old man's skull, the weapon discharged into the gremlin's own face, blowing its head clean off its shoulders. The muzzle flash illuminated the gory event inspiring the hysterical laughter of his fellows in the darkness. At the sound of the gun blast upon its back, the boar bucked, launching the remains of its corpse at Francisco, who stepped aside from the projectile. More gunshots sounded, and wherever there was a muzzle flash, the Ortegas answered with a round of their own. Nino's rifle had toppled into the muck at the first moment of bedlam, but Santiago had tossed him one of his pistols to keep the boy armed. Slowly, the group fell back from the ambush and into the light of the burning shanty. The towering fire penetrated the darkness into where the gremlins hid in the shadows, fire reflecting off their big eyes. More and more of their dark silhouettes could be seen just beyond the burning glow. One of the gremlins hefted an oversized bottle of alcohol and sucked on its mouth. A round from Francisco shattered the bottle and set the alcohol alight. In a flash, the gremlin's body was consumed in fire, and he ran around madly before he tumbled into another gremlin, both falling into the bog. Where's Papa? Perdita shouted over the continuing rain of gunfire. At her side, Santiago fired his pistol with his left hand after catching a bullet in the shoulder. With his luck, that crazy bastard will be the only one of us to walk out of this gunfight alive, Santiago called out, and then guffawed loudly, clearly enjoying himself. Not for the first time, Perdita wondered if he were crazier than the papa. We need to rout them. We're penned in here, she called out. In an attempt to prove himself, Nino dove back into the darkness. The light was quickly shaded by the thick flora of the marsh, and Nino searched blindly through the water for the body of his unconscious uncle. The sounds of gunfire were slightly muffled by the swamp growth as he felt the distance grow between him and his family. In the darkness, he saw a glint of light. He squinted, trying to identify it. The distinctive sound of a shotgun being chambered quickly announced the presence of an armed gremlin in front of him. It lifted its weapon, but before it could fire, Nino dove beneath the surface. Muffled by the water, Nino still heard the gun blast above him as it sent a shockwave through the water and rattled his bones. Lashing out, he grabbed the gremlin's legs and jerked them from underneath the beast. The two combatants waged their own private battle as the rest of the Ortegas continued to trade fire with the entrenched ambushes. They wrestled in the water until Nino finally came out on top. With a gasp for air, he leveled Santiago's revolver against the back of the gremlin's head and pulled the trigger. The environment in Malifaux was notoriously harsh on firearms. The heavy Peacebringer revolver is prized for its reliability and its resistance against the humid alkaline environment of this world. However, when Nino pulled the trigger of his weapon, a wet, defeated sound squished from the barrel. The gremlin turned its head, smiling a wide, toothy grin, and leapt onto the boy, 
plunging him beneath the water's surface. The gremlin stood above Nino, his hands around the hunter's throat, holding him struggling beneath the water. Nino kicked his legs and thrashed his arms, beating his fists against the water desperately. The pistol was still in his hand, and even as his lungs burned for air, he realized another fact about Santiago's weapons of choice. Gripping the weapon tightly, he lashed out at the gremlin's belly. The bladed grip of Santiago's pistol sliced open the gremlin's belly and it released its hold on him. Leaving up for air, Nino was quick to capitalize on this sudden change in advantage. He pressed the attack, and with another quick slice, he slashed the creature's neck. Its body stilled, and Nino felt it sink slowly into the marsh. Muy bien, said the familiar voice of his uncle. I was worried he had to, Sabrino. He punctuated his words with applause. A large gash on his forehead dripped blood from the bludgeoning blow of the gremlin's attack moments earlier. Bapa, jeez! Nino sloshed through the water and snatched the satchel from his uncle's shoulder before dashing away. As fast as he could, he struggled through the swamp and back to the others. Reaching the site of the burning shack, he sent the satchel sailing high overhead, into the air and out toward the gremlin attackers. Dita, he called out. Perita understood immediately. As the satchel soared through the air, she trained her pistol on it. Holding the weapon with both hands, she sighted down the barrel. She sucked in a deep breath, and in that moment the rhythm of her own heart was the only sound she heard. She counted down in time with that cadence of her pulse, waiting till the very last instant before firing. Her bullet detonated the satchel full of dynamite, and the sound was like a hundred thunderblasts all striking at once. The sky lit up like daybreak, and the concussion threw the Ortegas to the ground. The ground shook, and the trees were cracked and bent away from the blast. Nino, himself so close to the detonation, sailed through the air to land limply in the bog. The blast served its intent, however. Gremlins not killed by the blast fled, and in the aftermath of the explosion the roaring fire was the only sound to be heard. When Nino woke it was morning. The shanty had finished burning, and the camp had been moved near the blackened remains. Someone was frying in pig's fat over the campfire, and the smell of it roused him. Santiago was the first to notice the boy stirring and grinned widely at the sight. He clasped the boy tightly on the shoulder. Looks like the boy will live, he said to the others. Get him a wedge of ham from the big one on the spit. Santiago's voice barely registered on Nino's still ringing ears. You'll really save the day. It was Perdita beside him. We let our guard down, and those damn swamp rats got the drop on us. If it weren't for you, they might have closed the trap. As the group packed up camp, Nino grinned from ear to ear. It was high praise to earn a compliment from Perdita, and he was proud to finally earn her respect. She and Francisco discussed their next move, while Santiago attended his wound in the gourd gut of his cousin that had been tossed by the boar. They decided to travel to the second raid site and camp near the caravan trail. They'd send the others back to Malifo with passing miners so that the kid could get bandaged up proper. Santiago refused to join them despite his own injuries. Addressing the map again, Perdita spoke. This spot is near the area Crid wanted us to investigate, she said, pointing to the map. We'll head there. If we encounter any gremlin shanties, we'll deal with them on the way.
change of pace from what has happened in Malifaux to what is going on in Malifaux, I bring you the news. We have gotten a report from the Farnsby Lodge, one of the entertainment district's most elite social clubs, that a carriage has gone missing. It was parked up outside of the establishment last night and vanished without a trace. The carriage should be easy enough to find since it is being pulled by a team of clockwork horses. Those things don't just grow on trees, and not everyone has one. Earl Rushton, the owner of said coach, is proving to be somewhat harder to find. His coach was last seen rolling up to the building, but its owner was never seen going inside. Shortly after, the coach just vanished as well. Anyone with information should report to a member of the Guild Guard or the front desk at the club. Our second story for today is Tools of the Trade. Tools of the Trade Although Colette owned the star, Ramos showed no hesitation in stepping into the dressing rooms backstage. Showgirls in compromised states of undress covered themselves quickly, their mannequin constructs reacting to their urgency, covering their assigned showgirl as best they could, despite a seeming lack of interest in their bodies. Colette saw him enter. Although they were all still recovering from their recent attack in the sewers, she had to smile when Cassandra stood and approached him directly. She wore her stockings but little else save a sweet smile. Cassandra pushed the man more each time he visited them backstage presenting more of her bare flesh each time. He's still a man, Colette, she'd say. Ramos was the primary shadow investor of the star, and his involvement in its renovations was concealed in order to mask his association with the theatre. The precautions he took with his finances didn't seem to carry over into actual practice. Unless you're part of his plan, Cassandra, Colette explained, you might as well not exist. I hate to be a modest, Colette, but I'm not used to being ignored. If he thinks he can just come and go in our private rooms, I'll at least get him to acknowledge me. You'll see, she said. Next time. True to her word, the next time had come and she walked towards him bare-chested, a smile on her face. Other showgirls snickered into their palms, and Colette once more had reason to be thankful for her presence. All of them needed her bawdy bravado to help get over the shock and fear they'd recently experienced. Professor, Cassandra said, approaching him with arms outstretched implying that the two would embrace. If I had known you were coming, I'd have worn something more formal. Her head lilted to the side, mocking a simplicity of mind the others knew was far from reality, and she fluttered her eyes at him seductively. As Colette had predicted, though, he looked resolutely beyond one of Malifaux's most sought celebrities and brushed briskly past her, only fleetingly irritated that he needed to shift his path. Cassandra shrugged towards Colette clearly shocked, though still smiling. Colette shook her head as an automated mannequin attended her, the internal clockwork gears spinning and humming, as its linen-wrapped limbs draped a silk robe across the shoulders of the master magician. Like the secret vault beneath the star, very few individuals ever had an opportunity to visit this place. The treasures kept here were of a much different nature than those below. It was a room filled with gossamer curtains and silken, lacy articles of clothing strewn throughout. It smelled heavily of exotic perfumes, and possessed a slightly cloudy atmosphere from the powder applied liberally to the girls' faces. An impressive array of props was stacked haphazardly. Trick mirrors, boxes with false bottoms, and blunted stage swords. 
Colette's mannequin worked diligently at assisting its mistress dress and apply her makeup. Once Ramos stepped within five feet of her, though, the mannequin spun to face the intruder it sensed. All mannequins were designed to discreetly function as bodyguards for the performer to which they were assigned. The graceful construct serving Colette and Cassandra was something a bit more threatening. Colette's mannequin spun blindingly quick, and a high-pitched spinning of gears within its arms and chest caused twin scythes to release from hidden chambers within their forearms. The long blade snapped forward with a clack, and the creature held them above its head like a strange and lethal praying mantis. It whirled into a crouch, looking very much like the graceful dancer it was constructed to imitate. It lifted its arm blades to strike. Colette didn't bother to rein it in, as she knew Ramos could handle it easily. Indeed, he stared at it in its blank linen face, and motioned dismissively with his two forefingers as if batting a gnat. The Corifei mannequin hung its head obediently, and the arm blades closed back into the hidden chambers in its forearms. Obeying Ramos, it returned to attend Colette, following his silent command without hesitation. Colette's mechanized mannequin whirred and hummed as it returned to help her apply her makeup and fix her hair. Ramos stood behind her, his hands patiently clasped behind his back, making her uncomfortable. I lost a girl down there, Victor, she said, mustering her courage against the formidable man. They know it's dangerous work, but none of them expected to die like Margaret did. It's shaken them up. It's no matter, Colette, he answered dismissively. The Governor-General has called for quarantine. Security's increased to a paranoid state of the breach. Our operations are temporarily suspended until we see the Guild's precautions stabilize. I'm not sending anyone out there without knowing exactly what to expect at Malifaux Station. Still, it's not unreasonable me for check after my investments. She sighed. Irritated that he had missed the entire point about losing a girl as he focused only upon his plan and how to recover from a setback. She stifled it, though, as she replied. The shipment of text was lost, spilled into the sewer channel. Ramos winced, showing more emotion than she'd seen before. The other two carts were abandoned. If we venture down there again, we may be able to recover them. I don't know. Ramos lifted an eyebrow. Was anything salvaged? Colette rose, tying her robe, and moved across the room to open a chest in the corner. I was able to carry this sack of soul stones out with me. It was a fine thing I did, too. She withdrew the sack and carried it over to her vanity. I'm not sure we would have made it out of there without them. Ramos opened the sack and drew out each stone, appraising them one by one. He laid them upon the vanity. Each glowed with the primal energy of magic. The other girls in the dressing room paused to gaze at the precious objects. It was clear that these stones were of a superior grade. Even those few that had laid eyes on sorcerer-grade soul stones had never seen stones of such brilliant clarity or significant size. These were the treasures of this world that the lords of Malifaux struggled so desperately to possess. One stone lacked the beauty of the others. Its glow was like a candle's flame shining through a whiskey bottle. It did not possess the sharp, faceted edges of its fellows or their crystal clarity. What is it? asked Colette curiously. Ramos lifted his hand and gestured for the room to be cleared. Several of the girls frowned at the gesture, but none of them argued as they all quietly feared him. They filed out of the room without a sound, leaving Ramos and Colette alone. Though they knew Ramos intended their conversation to be private, the girls huddled around the door, pressing their ears against it in an effort to eavesdrop. Behind them, though, were the sound of heavy footsteps and a gruff man clearing his throat. His dark complexion and mohawk marked him as a native of the West. 
a tribe from the northwest coastal region. While many of these western natives were considered savages, their wilderness skills have allowed a number to enter the breach and be employed as scouts. This man seemed to have bucked that stereotype. And when he adjusted his dark glasses, he asked in a suggestive tone, Don't you ladies have something better to do? The girls stormed off to busy themselves with tasks backstage. You can forget about that special dance tonight, Joss. Joss didn't seem too concerned, and didn't seem to have any issues with eavesdropping on Ramos and Colette himself, as he took a stand against the dressing room door. They talked as tough as they could, but they all had a fear of the bulky tribesmen. Cassandra, though, lingered behind as the others busied themselves with the other backstage endeavors and took position next to Joss against the door. He opened his mouth to chastise her. He opened his mouth to chastise her, to usher her away, too. But the sharp arch of her eyebrow and the ominous sidelong glance warned him that he would be wise to let it be. He reluctantly submitted, understanding that this woman was something a bit different than the typical showgirl. He stood silent beside her, grinning rather foolishly. Like so many men, he decided he was in love with her, though he could not tell if it was more because of her beauty or her dangerous demeanor. Finally, he decided it was because she smelled like heaven. This is a particularly valuable gem, Ramos said within the dressing room. It was developed at Hollow Marsh as part of an endeavor known as Project Leviathan. The Leviathan? It's real? I'd heard the rumors, of course, but I didn't believe them, Colette asked incredulously. It is real indeed. If you possess such a weapon, why do you not use it to destroy the guild outright? He sighed. Let this stone be your answer. Ramos lifted the gem in front of an electric lamp. The light glowed warm amber and made a silhouette of the spider trapped deep inside. When she looked at the stone while in the sewer, however, she didn't notice that the spider seemed to be perched upon a tiny web. She inspected the stone more critically, her eyes peering into its heart. What appeared to be a web was actually a cluster of tiny fractures. Colette asked, It's cracked? in a whisper. That's right. The process that produced this stone is very expensive and very experimental. Even after all the years we've known soulstone, we still do not understand the method of its form and function. This stone was an attempt to emulate a power we cannot detect, cannot perceive. Though the result was powerful, it ultimately proved insufficient to animate the Leviathan for any extended period of time. Without a stone of sufficient quality, the Leviathan is nothing more than a slumbering titan. This stone no longer possesses the motive force necessary to operate that machine. I had arranged to sell the stone to an interested party who did not know its origin, but with the guild quarantine as well as the other lost valuables, that deal is off. I understand. That was a client I was intended to meet with. Yes, he said. You're a clever woman, Miss Dubois, and your contribution to the movement has not gone unnoticed he said, in reference to the growing Arcanist resistance. I understand the loss you suffered to your staff, but I have a feeling that times will be difficult for us for the foreseeable future. I understand the loss you suffered to your staff, but I have a feeling that times will be difficult for us for the foreseeable future. You may be asked to perform additional sacrifices, and I can't have you doubt your place in our organization. I'm worried that your mastery of arcane magic, though impressive, fall short of my typical expectations. His brutal honesty hurt, but she knew his opinion of her and others were always sharply critical. Your control over the finer nuances of the forces of magic requires constant soulstone fuel, and I worried that supporting you as a true master in the organization would be too costly. 
He was silent as he regarded her, not really as a person, but as a tool to fulfill his own agenda. He eventually said, When our trade resumes, I will send a message to our client Earthside that the Eye of the Leviathan has been lost and is no longer available. Let this stone be the compensation you are due for your loyal service. Ramos held the stone before the light for a moment longer before handing it to her. Though it could no longer satisfy the voracious appetite of the colossal leviathan, its deep well of power was still far from extinguished. Colette could feel that considerable power as a luring warmth in her hand. She had felt that power course through her, and it was enough to burn her out if she let it. It would be a valuable tool if such trials as Ramos described were truly on the horizon. Colette took a moment to study the stone in her grip before meeting Ramos' gaze. What do you mean, sacrifices? With an emotionless and detached tone, Ramos responded, No one is greater than the movement, Miss Dubois. We will have need of you. Colette had always known the power of Ramos' charisma and the convincing quality of his passion. She could feel its potent effect on her in this moment. Being a performer, she understood well the importance and power of presence. This immunized her to a small extent against the force of Ramos' considerable will. Where another might have been bowled over and drawn in as a loyal sycophant, that power had another effect on her. It frightened her. She could see in his eyes that he knew the power he held over her, too. The tension broke suddenly when Joss entered the room. Cassandra behind him with arms folded, looking cross. Boss, the theater's starting to get crowded. The girls are going to need to go on soon. Yes, of course. Show them back in, Joss, Ramos said, dismissing his associate. In a lowered voice, one meant only for Colette, he said, There is a reason I chose you for this, Miss Dubois. You will not be mastered. You will not be led. I will need strong allies such as you in the months ahead. Before Colette could respond, her girls filed back into the room and hurried about, rushing to complete their preparations for the show, their mannequins moving as quickly as they could to keep pace. Ramos made his way to the door and turned to remark with one last comment. Break a leg tonight, Miss Dubois. I've been looking forward to your act. He paused at the door and said over his shoulder, And when the show is over, I expect you to recover my shipment left in the sewers. He left without another word, as the girls looked hopelessly from one to another. Colette Dubois performed as she did every night, and none in that audience were any wiser to the clandestine activity she perpetrated in the late hours after the show ended. Her dealings with captains of industry, mercenaries, and petty crooks were far beyond the wildest imaginings of the simple miners that watched her now. They had no concept of the true nature of the union they supported so fervently. Their only value was in the labor they performed, and the violence they could be inspired to perform. As she demonstrated her talents for stage magic, she looked out across the crowd and saw Ramos lift his drink toward her, as isolated in the back as he could be with such a crowd of men clustering about. Even after the dramatic nature of their conversation and the grim subjects they discussed, she couldn't help but smile. As she considered the clueless masses that filed into this theatre for drink and show, she realized that she wasn't so different from that man after all. of Tales
Charles Malifaux with a reminder for the competition we are running for our younger listeners out there. Do not forget, we want images of whatever has haunted you in your dreams recently. And it can be in any medium. Story, poem, abstract thoughts, whatever you like. The winner will win a very special tour of the Tales of Malifaux Studio. If you decide to enter a drawing, then do make sure any pencils are sharpened by or with the help of a responsible adult, because bad things happen.